Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're your hosts, Elliot Simpson and Connor Fraser. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. In the past few years, Europe has appeared unsettled. From the 2014 Crimean crisis, to Brexit, to a rise in far-right politics across the continent, it is never short of news. Today, we'll discuss a few of the stories that are affecting Europe now and defining its future. Starting in Western Europe, we'll speak with Mr. Robert Haig about the past, present, and future of the relationship between France and Germany. Also, with Angela Merkel stepping down later this year, we'll look ahead and discuss what the future holds for Germany in the face of an upcoming election and external threats. Later in the episode, my colleague Connor Fraser is joined by Mr. Keir Giles from Chatham House for a conversation about Russia. They discuss how the Russian state and society are portrayed by mainstream Western sources and how this representation often differs from reality. Russia's support for the Belarusian government in the wake of last year's mass protests and the recent poisoning and arrest of Alexei Navalny are also unpacked. But first, to Germany, and a discussion with Mr. Robert Haig. Robert Haig is a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an executive fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. He obtained law degrees from the University of Toronto and University College London and was called to the Alberta Bar. He also attended the École Nationale d'Administration in Paris. He was a Foreign Service Officer for 38 years with the Department of Global Affairs and served as Canada's Ambassador to Hungary and Slovenia as Director General for Europe and Director General for Legal Affairs. Mr. Haig, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. So I was hoping we could start by exploring a little bit of the background and timeline behind the current relationship between France and Germany, as I understand it's quite the story. Yes, it is. And, and in a sense, when you're looking at foreign affairs, you've got to concentrate, I think, on two things, history and geography, which often make or form the basis of a country's uh, of foreign affairs, even though they might deny it. It's uh, history and geography are, are heavy components. On the geography side, it's not quite so important as uh, the longest undefended border that we have with the United States, but it's it's significant that the Germans have about uh, uh, 200, um, uh, about 20 million more people than the French, although the French have almost uh, not quite, but double the size of territory. So in that sense, there's sort of a, a, a quality and inequality in the geography. And then we hit the 20th century and we were faced with two world wars where again, France and Germany and other parts of Europe <laughs> were battling each other, but the Germans again were the, were the enemy uh, from the point of view of the allies, which of course included us and the British and, and the French, and then eventually the Americans in both cases. So it's been a very, very challenging period historically for these two countries. And what happened after the end of the uh, Second World War is significant. And the person that introduced this significant period is Jean Monnet. And I'll speak a bit later about Jean Monnet's uh, uh, Canadian connection, but he was a senior French advisor. He was a man of uh, 
great background. Uh, he came from a family in uh, Cognac that owned a fairly well-known uh, distillery that made Cognac. And, uh, but his, his view of uh, United Europe and Europe working together was a preeminent feature of the man. And in uh, 1950, he wrote what is now called the Schumann Declaration, where the Prime Minister, or the Foreign Minister of, um, of uh, France, Robert Schumann, who was actually born in Alsace when he was part of Germany, but very French, uh, came up with Monet's idea or explained Monet's idea of a, um, a European coal and steel community. <clears throat> and this was in a, uh, a, a structure where the two countries agreed that they would pool their uh, iron and uh, coal and, and steel resources under a sole authority. And these were the instruments in many ways of war. If you want to go to war, you need battleships, you need tanks, you need rifles, all of this depends on the use of coal and steel. And the idea was to bring these industries together along with those of other uh, smaller European countries. And as Monet said at the time, if we did not start a coal and steel association, we started the beginning of Europe. And that actually has turned out to be exactly what happened. And that this man who was such a, an advocate for um, European uh, understanding and the ends of these wars that had uh, transfixed that continent for so many uh, centuries would come to an end. The Canadian connection is interesting because he spent a formative part of his life in Canada. And this, obviously we're getting off the topic a bit about Europe, but I think it's interesting to understand uh, where some people think he got his ideas from. So he came to sell cognac in Canada from 1907 to 1914, the, um, mainly in Western Canada, one of the biggest buyers of it was interestingly the Hudson's Bay Company. And he observed immigrants in Winnipeg uh, railway station who had come from all over Europe. And he saw that they were ambitious for the future. And he said, no one thought about the limits. No one knew where the frontier was, but they looked at for taking an individual initiative, which could be accepted as a contribution to the general good. And uh, an author, a Norwegian author has written a book called Jean Monnet in Canada, Early Travels and the Idea of European Unity. And he sees that what Monet found and wrote about in his memoirs in Canada laid the basis for what is eventually became the European coal and steel community and then the European economic community. And then of course, the European Union that we know today. And he said, Canada became a source of creativity for Monet both as an inspirational model and as a guiding reference to him in times of turmoil and conflict. Quote, patience, compromise, and tenacity were the key virtues in which the author calls the, curric the curriculum of Monet's Canada School of Experience. So uh, if we want to puff up ourselves a bit, I guess we could say that the very nature of Canada and its open society perhaps laid a basis for what Europe enjoys today. And at that time, one of the key aspects of Monet's idea was that France and Germany would be the motor of the European Union. And he saw these two countries, and that was the key part of the coal and steel community. 
it was France and Germany cooperating together for the first time on something that they both uh, needed and both were prepared to share. Uh, the Treaty of Rome, bringing together the six uh, European countries to form the European Economic Communion, a community was signed in 1957. And, um, and just recently, uh, last October, as a matter of fact, uh, the German Foreign Office issued a memo which says, France is Germany's closest and most important partner in Europe. And I think that's something they could probably have issued uh, every, every year uh, since 1957, because that consistency has been there for that period of time. So what happened was in uh, one of the most significant events that took place uh, after the formation of the coal and steel community and the European economic community was a 1963 visit by Conrad Adenauer to Paris. Adenauer by the, at the time was 87 years old and he visited Charles de Gaulle and they together they signed a Franco-German friendship treaty which is called the Elysee Treaty. And just think about this for a minute that here is uh, Adenauer who was a, an absolute foe of Hitler and, um, and arrives as the chancellor, the post-war chancellor of uh, West Germany. And who is he meeting? But he's meeting the leader of the, of the Free French, a very a principled, uh, strong-willed leader uh, who probably towered over him. And the two of them set off on this path of ongoing cooperation in the Elysee Agreement. And that is that same agreement has just been uh, reinforced uh, just two years ago. So it's something that is still very relevant in the, in the relationship that these two countries have together. Fast forwarding to today then, Angela Merkel has had Germany's top job for the past 15 years and really has been a figure of stability for that time. Indeed, compared to other countries during her time leading Germany, there have been four French presidents and five British PMs. When, when she steps down later this year, what do you see happening next, both for Germany in particular, but also for this uh, relationship with France? Because um, I know it's still unclear who will take the reins come September. Well, she has been a remarkable success. Uh, first of all, she's the first woman um, uh, prime minister or chancellor of Germany, and also I think probably the longest serving uh, woman leader in, in the uh, democratic world. Um, she's a very skillful politician. Uh, she's uh, taciturn, uh, so she doesn't uh, wear her uh, heart on her sleeve by any stretch of the imagination, but she's been extremely successful as a centrist and somebody who um, reflects uh, on, on uh, the, the, what, what is required. She's not a, an actor that moves immediately or without thought. Uh, she's a, a very uh, reflective uh, sort of leader um, over a party that is uh, known to have been and still is perhaps a bit uh, challenging uh, with different factions for the center as well as more on the right wing uh, defending business interests. So she has been somebody that I think has really, uh, and the commentators say that, has uh, sort of um, uh, structured or has reflected uh, modern Germany in many ways and has been viewed as a stabilizing force. Now, obviously all politicians have to leave at some time 
and uh, she has had 16 uh, tumultuous years, 16 years where um, the, she had to face, first of all, the Euro crisis, and then she had to face, that was in 2007, 2008, and then she had to face this, this question of the massive number of million refugees arriving in Germany in 2015. So she has handled these things, and I think commentators feel in some ways she hasn't handled them well uh, or well enough, and that the forces that she triggered are still there and will still have to be dealt with in the years ahead uh, with Germany taking a role. In the case of the Euro crisis, uh, she put in uh, strict austerity measures through the European Union and the states that uh, were largely responsible for their overspending and the uh, lack of uh, revenues, uh, the huge debts that they were piling up. The southern countries, uh, Greece was the one that started it, Italy, uh, Spain, Portugal, all suffered economic uh, decline during that period. And they hold uh, her responsible in a way. Uh, the other thing is the refugee crisis. And this was when uh, in 2015, she welcomed uh, refugees who were fleeing from um, the turmoil in the Middle East and uh, the collapse of Syria and the collapse of, uh, and the rise of ISIS from, uh, from Iraq. Uh, these were features that brought thousands and thousands of people to Europe. And uh, I think she felt that the best thing to do would be to welcome them since they were already on the continent or on the Western part of the continent. And I, at, the, at the start, the German population uh, welcomed that. But uh, times changed. There were a lot more than I think were expected. She gave apparently little leadership as to say uh, what would happen uh, to the refugees, how they would be fitted into the German society, and whether more would be coming. But a million in one year is an extraordinary event. Uh, she's also proved to be quite neutral on Russia and quite neutral on China. And uh, these are things, again, and we'll get to, to talk about some of those a bit later, that are ongoing issues. So she leaves some things behind as she retires, but generally an extremely positive um, image. But the case with the, uh, with the refugees has seen the, the rise of the alternative uh, party for Germany, the AFD, uh, which is a, an extremely right-wing party, anti-immigrant, and uh, they now are the largest opposition uh, party in the Bundestag. And they have come about largely, I think, because of this refugee crisis and marshalling uh, opposition to that, uh, the acceptance of these refugees to their, uh, uh, to their own, uh, to, to obtain their own strength in the Bundesbank. The Bundesbank. So these are, um, these are issues that, that she's leaving behind, but I think overall, it's a very positive image that she has had. And in terms of then the relationship with France, because I know most commentators believe that Armin Laschet will take, uh, will take the job come September, but I also know that uh, there's an election coming up in France. And so there is a possibility that come 2022, uh, we won't see Angela Merkel, but we also won't see Emmanuel Macron. Yes, that's very true. And, and like anything, I guess, in the world, uh, especially the democratic world that relies on uh, politicians and their elections, you just never know, in, in, a, in a sense, what's going to happen next. 
Uh, the French election is out, uh, is due in May, uh, starting in April, but the results will be known in May of 2022. Uh, Macron is not everybody's favorite uh, person these days in France. And there, you're quite correct, there's a possibility of a change. Uh, the worst uh, possible thing would be if the right wing parties uh, were able to take power from him, who again, and I think the it's a basis for the relationship between uh, between Merkel and Macron is they're both uh, centrist moderates. And uh, I think they see uh, a lot of things in the world eye to eye, although I think France has been uh, less Atlantist than the Germans, which also have carried that through uh, since the Second World War and the role of the United States. It's uh, anybody's guess at this stage how, first of all, the CDU, her party is going to do in the September elections here. And then the question of France and what's going to happen there next year. And I don't, I think it's fair to say nobody knows right at this stage. In terms of the relationship between uh, Angela Merkel and Vladimir Putin, specifically as it relates to a certain pipeline in the, uh, in the North Sea. Yeah, this has been, and, and in a sense, um, it's, uh, it's, it's not really what you would have hoped for as far as uh, Mrs. Merkel is concerned. Um, Schroeder, who was the previous chancellor, um, has been a proponent of this pipeline because he's been hired basically by the Russian company for years uh, to promote it. And uh, it seems to be going ahead. She hasn't been very critical of uh, Putin, and especially in these days where there's uh, uh, the, the, the insurrections that are going on in Russia that are being clamped down by their, uh, by their police. Uh, she hasn't really come to the fore as one of the uh, Europeans that's uh, highly critical of this. And then we'll talk a little bit more about China as well, where again, she has been sort of muted. Uh, so these are, are issues that I think we would hope that uh, Germany would take a larger role in. Armin Laschet, who is uh, the, the new head of the CDU, but not yet chosen as its candidate for um, the presidency or for, to be the chancellor, uh, because, um, the, as you know, there's a, a structure in the CDU party with the, with the, uh, with the uh, Bavarian uh, contingent in the CSU, and its leader, uh, Marcus Soder, has yet to declare whether or not he's interested in the chancellorship um, and leading the, the combined uh, CDU and CSU in September. He's a more popular figure in Germany uh, than... Um, Laschet is. But Laschet has also been quite, you might say, soft on Russia and soft on China. Although, again, commentators are mentioning that uh, he's simply perhaps following uh, Merkel's lead and that he might be tougher uh, once he, if he was uh, able to be their candidate in the uh, September election. So, again, these are open questions. But I think uh, certainly the Western countries, ourselves, the United States, the British, and I, perhaps the French as well, are looking for a bit more spine on some of these questions from Germany. Now, just to wrap up and not to put you on the spot, but what is the single greatest threat to uh, say the Franco-German relationship, but also Europe at large in the next 10 years? Well, I think it's, it's a threat that we all share. And it's a threat that uh, we're not in, in many ways, we're getting more and more prepared for it, but it's been something that has been an issue worldwide uh, or in, the, in Western countries 
uh, revolving China and, and what's been happening in China. And as you know, Canada has its own stories about this as a result of the, uh, basically the incarceration of two innocent Canadians to be used as a, as a bargaining chip. And I just wanted a, a brief quote from uh, the commission president, uh, the European commission president, Mrs. von der Leyen, who of course is a German, and uh, she had a way of, of putting this in the, her State of the Union address last year, in which she said, China is a negotiating partner, an economic competitor, and a systemic rival. And the challenge though for Germany is that China is their largest trading partner outside of the European Union. There's 3000 uh, German companies involved in trade with China. It's hugely prosperous for them. And that is perhaps one reason why they've been a bit more uh, nuanced in their approach. But I think that the Chinese threat is such that all democracies have to deal with. And um, the, uh, the way that they are using their resources, the way that they're spending money in, uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on, the, on the new Silk Road, uh, putting states in, in, in Africa into debt, in order to uh, build uh, infrastructure for them, but the, the uh, states eventually have to pay for it. Um, there's a whole plan, uh, the way they've been dealing with the Uyghurs, the way that they've been dealing with Hong Kong, uh, absolutely uh, ignoring any uh, comment or almost uh, deriding foreign comment of criticism. I think this is an issue that is going to embrace, uh, first of all, the transatlantic uh, union, uh, if I could say that, between uh, the European Union and Canada and the United States. It's not down on paper yet, but hopefully uh, there will be a much more in, uh, enhanced cooperation uh, than would have been possible under President Trump and now under President Biden. He's actually saying that he's going to call uh, a summit of the democracies, which would include as well the European democracies, uh, Canada, and then uh, those in, in Asia, Japan, Korea, perhaps India as well, to deal with uh, how we united uh, deal with, uh, with China while still uh, being able to foreign policy decisions with them on things like climate change, but on things like democracy and human rights and the rule of law, uh, the West has to work together to make sure that that is a worldwide issue and something that uh, we can confront China with. And I think the Germans will be key to that and they have to work out their own economic interests. But I think that's what uh, the world is going to be facing and France and Germany hopefully, hopefully will be uh, very much engaged in that exercise. These are questions obviously that are very pertinent right now. Um, and uh, uh, you know, sometimes in Canada, we don't pay enough attention to what's going on in Europe. We're, we're fixated, obviously, by the United States. And uh, the continental Europe is, is uh, and now with our agreements under with CETA and uh, this uh, strategic partnership agreement, uh, we're in, in much more uh, collaboration with uh, the European Union and its member countries uh, than we have been before. Um, and it might change now and likely will, but the Germans were very engaged in, in Canada diplomatically during the Trump period. Uh, they liked to come to Canada. They liked to talk to or come to us, in, 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 not in the physical sense, but chat with us, talk to us. 
um, over uh, the United States and how to deal with Mr. Trump. And now, of course, with Biden, it's, it's a different game. But I think we're hoping still that Canada will have a role in this uh, transatlantic dialogue that uh, the Europeans are quite keen to have. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Haig. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Very interesting questions. Thank you once again to Mr. Robert Haig for joining us. After a brief musical break, we'll move on to Russia and our conversation with Mr. Keir Giles of Chatham House. But first, The Partisan by Leonard Cohen. When they poured across the border, I was cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. I have changed my name so often. I've lost my wife and children, but I have many friends. And some of them are with me An old woman gave us shelter Kept us hidden in the garret Then the soldiers came She died without a whisper There were three of us this morning I'm the only one this evening, but I must go on. The frontiers are my prison. Oh, the wind, the wind is blowing. Through the graves, the wind is blowing. Freedom soon will come. Then we'll come from shadow Les Allemands étaient chez moi Ils me disent signe-toi Mais je n'ai pas peur
was the Partisan by Leonard Cohen. We continue our musical break with one more song. It's Jeanette by Beau Dommage. D'un gars tranquille, d'une fille perdue, il l'a connu un lundi soir. Chez des amis, où il était venu faire ses devoirs, écouter les conter l'histoire. Je l'ai connu un lundi soir, c'est bien gravé dans ma mémoire. Elle m'a demandé si tu dansais. J'y ai dit non, elle allait mettre un record. J'avais signé mon arrêt de mort. Ginette, avec tes seins et tes souliers à talons hauts, t'as mis de la brume dans mes lunettes, t'as fait de moi un animal, Ginette. Fais-moi sauter dans ton cerceau. Dire que j'ai fait mon cours classique, je me souviens plus à quel endroit j'aimais bien les mathématiques. Mais grâce à elle, j'étais content, je savais comment compter les pas. Welcome back to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your co-host, Connor Fraser, along with my colleague, Elliot Simpson. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter, at beyond underscore headlines. For our second and final segment of the episode, I'm joined by Keir Giles, who is a senior consulting fellow at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. He also works with the UK-based Conflict Studies Research Group, a group of experts in Eurasian security who focus on the wide range of challenges emanating from Russia. Kiera and I spoke on March 17th, and our discussion spotlights recent events that happened within Russia and Belarus. Okay, uh, good morning, Kiera. Uh, thank you for joining me today, and how are you doing? Oh, fine, Connor. Doing just fine out here in lockdown in the middle of the English countryside. doesn't feel like lockdown because farm life goes on as ever it does. So in between watching Russia, we're dealing with the lambing and, uh, you know, it's as though there's no pandemic at all. So I wanted to start off by asking you about yourself and uh, I guess your career path that brought you to this point. 
um, where you work with Chatham House. I understand it's been very nonlinear, and I find that to be very inspiring. So, um, could you could you uh, tell us um, some more? Well, nonlinear is a, a polite way of describing it. Actually, career is a polite way of describing it. It's more like a kind of series of accidents that um, that ended up with me doing this kind of stuff for Chatham House. I never set out to be somebody who writes about Russia. Uh, I more or less um, incidentally started doing Russia at school, uh, was never supposed to be a, an analyst of any kind, um, but uh, just one thing led to another. And um, after about the briefest possible career in the the Royal Air Force, I uh, ended up flying Soviet paramilitary and military aircraft in Crimea and bringing uh, Western European pilots over to, um, to try them out when they were still very exotic. Uh, and after that, just kind of drifted from one thing to another because I needed a winter job because flying happens during the summer. So I went over to BBC monitoring the, the part of the BBC that collects open source information for, for Western governments, particularly from Russia. After that, it was uh, being seconded from there to Conflict Studies Research Center at the UK Defense Academy, which once upon a time had been Soviet Studies Research Center and had places for people who, um, who knew stuff about Russia and could apply that knowledge to looking at what was happening in that very chaotic period in the 90s and beginning of the 2000s. And that's really what uh, led me to where I am today. Um, having done it for a number of decades and built up a certain amount of experience, you see things in Russia happening over and over again. And very little that happens uh, today actually surprises you because the patterns are so repetitive. And that's what means that uh, when Chatham House um, asks me to, to comment or to research or to, uh, to look into a particular issue, generally we can relate it back to consistent Russian behaviors and, uh, and explain how the one thing that you need to bear in mind when, when dealing with Russia is that things over there don't change. Yeah, that's fa fascinating. So you said that you were, you were flying um, people from the Royal Air Force over to Crimea to, uh, to, I guess, test these aircraft. Was that during the 1990s, just after the Soviet Union had fallen? Well, it was a little bit more complicated than that. I was in and out of the RAF before any of this happened. So that was uh, super brief. But then afterwards, uh, both immediately before and straight after the end of the USSR, that's when I was um, down in Crimea and in places near Moscow playing with these, uh, these Soviet military aircraft because the USSR had come to an end and uh, suddenly they had uh, no jobs for their pilots, no fuel for their aircraft. But at the same time, Russia was opening up. So you had a lot of people who'd been fascinated about all of this Soviet equipment and wanted to go and have a look and have a play with it. So we had everything from uh, people who wanted to uh, practice their aerobatics with Soviet aer world aerobatics champions to people who just wanted to, to build up their hours of flying so they could get commercial pilots licenses because they were um, because it was incredibly cheap at that time to take some of these Russian aircraft up for an hour or two. And we had, of course, at the top end, the folks who wanted to play with the, uh, the really exotic high-end Soviet uh, military aircraft, the fast jets, and so on. So it was a uh, it was a fun time, and it was um, it could never last. And of course, sure enough, as soon as people figured out what was going on, it came to an end pretty rapidly. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a very uh, fascinating and unique time um, in history. I guess my next question is what what um, about the study of Russia really fascinates or captivates you? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, as I said, I never set out to do this deliberately, but uh, by the time I was uh, so deep into it, there was no getting out. What, um, what makes me carry on with it is um, just the, the need to try to explain why Russia is a problem. And I mean, a problem not just for, uh, for countries, but for individual people in, in Western liberal democracies, particularly during the time when nobody was really paying attention to Russia before 2014. Uh, for a couple of decades, Russia was considered as, uh, as not a problem, potentially even our friend, but there were always these undercurrents, which meant that sooner or later, Russia was going to be a challenge again. So in a way, uh, it was me and people like me who were um, <clears throat> trying to point out during all of this period that actually there is going to be a serious problem coming from Moscow sooner or later. Uh, it's, no, um, it's no pleasure at all to have been proved right. But of course, the period since 2014 has been incredibly busy for us as well, because we have that um, accumulated knowledge and that uh, accumulated study of Russia that helps us explain what's going on now. You recently published a, a book about Russia called Moscow Rules, What Drives Russia to Confront the West? And I wanted to talk to you, um, hopefully, a little a bit about uh, your book and some of the material in it. So what is, is the central thesis? Well, the main message uh, from it is, is one I've already mentioned. It's the fact yeah. that over time, in fact, over centuries, things don't change in Russia. So we shouldn't necessarily expect today's Russian leaders to react to, uh, to problems that they face abroad and at home in any different way to how Russian leaders have throughout the centuries, because it's been so incredibly consistent. But there's also a consistency in the reason why I set out to write the book in the first place, because over these years and in fact decades of trying to explain to, to people and to policymakers and to decision makers in the West uh, what Russia was doing and why and what the reasons were that drove Russia always to be so antagonistic towards the West, we found ourselves saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, being asked precisely the same questions about Russian behavior, providing the same explanation, but it having absolutely no impact whatsoever on the understanding of what Russia might do next, or the understanding of why it was that Russia seemed so aggressive towards the West and also to its own people. So that was the reason for uh, trying to write it all down in a book, basically to, uh, to stop having to say it over and over again. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that, um, you know, there's this very clear pattern of Russian behavior, but yet there's this disconnect where where Western policymakers just seem to not not be getting it. So, what is what is your strategy for for getting your message across to them? Um, you put your finger on the key problem: Western policymakers not getting it, and you can understand them in a way because so much of what Russia does makes no sense because there is this this disconnect between things that we take for granted in in liberal democracies and things that are taken for granted in Moscow, with an entirely different view of the world and of recent history and how relations between states actually should work. So, when you present a, a Western politician with Russian actions and you try to explain what, uh, what is driving those actions and what lies behind these policy choices that Russia makes that seem to make no sense, it's extremely hard for politicians who've grown up in a particular environment to step out of that, to put themselves in Moscow's shoes, to abandon 
everything that they've previously take for, taken for granted about how the world works. And so it's not surprising that uh, sometimes they get it wrong. They get it wrong once, twice, or, or sometimes permanently. Usually there's a, um, a fairly predictable learning curve for Western politicians who encounter this problem for the first time. And we've seen this happen with, with so many different people over the years. There's hope for a better relationship with Russia and then there's disappointment, disillusion and, uh, and the, the reversal of everything they'd hoped for. When our Prime Minister Boris Johnson was, uh, was foreign minister in 2017, he went to Moscow like so many people have done before him looking for a reset, looking for a conversation that would actually improve relations, get them off to a better footing, try to, uh, try to put problems aside and move on to working better with Russia. A couple of years later, he referred to that as a fool's errand. He said it was the biggest political mistake he'd ever made because like so many people before him, he found that the problems were in fact intractable and it takes more than just trying to, to go to Moscow with goodwill to actually deal with those fundamental contradictions between Russia and the West. So that in a way is the, the end message of the book. In fact, it's the conclusion of the book. What do we do about this fact? The fact that there is this incompatibility and the suggestion, and it's one that we've made again over years and in fact decades is that we should live with it instead of trying to resolve it. Instead of trying to fix the problem, I just actually recognize that there is that incompatibility and there's no, uh, there's no connection whatsoever between how Russia and the West sees the world and sees how countries should work together. So let's think instead of periods throughout history when it's been possible to manage the relationship instead of trying to improve it and to keep it stable, to keep it predictable, to keep it safe. So you mentioned that there's this, this fundamental incompatibility. Um, could you give maybe a, a specific example of what you mean by, by that in terms of you know, Russian, Russian society or the mindset of Russian leaders? Um, how, how is it, you know, fundamentally different than what we live every day in the West? Yeah, sure. One of the, the best and clearest examples is what lies at the root of this, this confrontation that you have in Eastern Europe, in the frontline states, the ones who are up against uh, Russia at the moment. Now, Russia still sees itself as a great power, and there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that term. Part of it is the idea that it has greater rights than other countries. So small countries around its periphery that are relatively recently independent, Russia still sees implicitly as part of its domain. And it should have the right to constrain those countries' choices to make sure that they don't have options in their foreign policy, their security policy, to, for example, join the EU or join NATO. And we saw what happened when Ukraine tried to have a closer relationship with the EU. It led to the seizure of Crimea by Russia and the start of a war in Eastern Ukraine that's still dragging on. Now that idea that Russia should have these rights over other countries, and in particular that Russia's defensive perimeter should actually be several hundred kilometers further than Russia's own borders, is in direct contradiction to how the West thinks about countries that these countries around Russia's periphery should be sovereign, should be independent, they should be able to make their own choices. And if those choices do include looking for protection to NATO or looking for a better economic environment to the EU, then they should be allowed to do that without a, a Russian veto. Now, those two ideas 
are completely and fundamentally incompatible. There's no overlap between them whatsoever. And that's one of the areas where it's been impossible to have a conversation with Russia simply because they are so far apart. That That is um, interesting. And I think it's a good way to segment into the section um, where I wanted to ask you about Belarus. So I think our listeners will know that there was a presidential election in Belarus last August. Um, and there were widespread allegations of voter fraud, which led to protests, which have been ongoing for several months now. Uh, but the end result, despite hopes of some sort of reform, is that the president, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, is still um, entrenched in power. And this is in large part due to, to, uh, to Russia. So how has Russia responded to the protest movement in Belarus? Because I think it's a really great example of, of how you said um, they they try and protect their their sphere of influence. That's exactly correct. Now, in the early stages after that presidential election in in Belarus in August of last year, we were very concerned that this would prompt an assertive reaction from Russia in the form that we'd seen in Ukraine previously, because a change of government in Belarus that is not controlled by Russia would pose a threat to Russian security interests as they perceive them in exactly the same way as Ukraine would. It's part of the Slavic heartland and it's part of what Russia sees as its core interest to maintain a pro-Russian Russian government there. But there wasn't that reaction. There wasn't the, um, the, the military incursion. There wasn't the, uh, the seizure of power that we were concerned about in Belarus. Instead, it's been a far more subtle and a far more pernicious process. The key problem, of course, was that the protesters in Belarus, the people who have been out on the streets uh, in an incredibly impressive and brave display of civil um, civil activism ever since that election, weren't able to translate that popular discontent into any actual political gains. And they were not able to face down the, the vicious repression by the Belarusian security forces, maintaining President Lukashenko in power. If the situation had been less unstable, then it might, there might have been more likely to be a, a Russian intervention that was more overt and more visible. But instead, uh, since Lukashenko has been looking for outside help, what you've seen is the creeping realization of a lot of long-term Russian objectives towards Belarus in the, in the way in which Belarus has um, uh, looked to Russia for help with maintaining its security services, with help with, uh, with maintaining its information space after journalists re resigned en masse, uh, with the closer integration with Russian military uh, forces arriving on exercise, and uh, the outsourcing of Belarusian security that Russia has been asking for for a long time. So a lot of these, uh, these long-term aims where Russia wanted to bring Belarus closer and to take control of more uh, of its security sector and more of its economy have now been realized because President Lukashenko has been backed into a corner and needs that Russian help. So the situation you have now, particularly in the military domain, is quite different from before we entered this crisis. Uh, previously, Belarus was doing quite a good job of maintaining its own independence and its own freedom of movement, uh, not beholden to Russia, and keeping its own uh, military independence. Now you have a, a semi-persistent presence of Russian troops already on Belarusian soil, and you have Russia taking part in exercises which demonstrate for everybody that's watching how it can actually place its forces on that western border of Belarus alongside Poland and Lithuania in a matter of hours directly from Russia. And that's a fundamentally new situation, which obviously poses a challenge to those NATO countries. To paraphrase, um, 
what you said, I gather that Russia has used this situation as a uh, you know, some sort of leverage to further encroach onto, onto Belarusian sovereignty, which before this was somewhat independent. But because Lukashenko, you said, has been backed into this corner, he's had to sort of turn to, to Russia for help to maintain his grip on power. And now you have a situation where Russian troops are, you know, at essentially the, the Belarusian-Polish border. That's a really good summary of it. Yes, Belarus was previously defending its independence, but now has been forced to make concessions because President Lukashenko is no longer in the strong position that he previously had. So a lot of those long-term Russian aims have now been realized. From the West perspective, I know Canada has enacted some sanctions on Lukashenko and some of his, uh, some of his ministers, specifically for the, the crackdown on protesters. And I imagine the United States and probably the United Kingdom have looked at similar options. But apart from that, what what can uh, what what can we expect the Western governments to do in response? Do they really have any options? <laughs> Practically. Unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, there are very few options that uh, that would actually improve the situation instead of making it worse. Now, one of the um, the low profile success stories that was uh, that lasted right up until these August elections was the way in which uh, direct military cooperation between Belarus and some NATO countries with the, the UK and the lead was actually progressing really well. And it was a, uh, a way in which that Russian influence could be counted in a way which was positive for Belarus and assisting it in, in maintaining its independence. That obviously has come crashing to a halt along with all similar programs, despite the fact that the, the armed forces haven't been involved in this repression and this crackdown. It's this, um, uh, this reaction by Western countries of cutting off contacts with the regime as a whole. Uh, but there's very little really that can be done other than helping and fostering and facilitating the opposition, which in a way is, uh, is morphing into a kind of government in exile, recognized by, by a number of different countries as the legitimate voice of Belarus, but absolutely powerless within the country. Definitely, I'll be paying very close attention to the situation as it unfolds. But as you say, probably... Um, best to not be overly optimistic about prospects for change in the near future. Um, I wanted, uh, for our last section, turn to um, Alexei Navalny, who was in the news very recently due to his poisoning in Russia and then his flight to Germany and then his return to Russia, where he was arrested and very quickly sentenced to two years in prison. Just for our uh, listeners who aren't familiar, who is Alexei Navalny? <laughs> That's an excellent question. And you'll probably get a different answer from everybody you ask, because he is so many different things to so many different people. He's routinely um, portrayed in Western media as, as a Russian opposition leader, but that's technically not correct. He, he doesn't stand as an opposition party member. He's occasionally stood for election, but he doesn't represent a movement as such. Instead, he is more of a, an anti-corruption activist who stands against a lot of the things that the current Russian regime does, but not for a great deal that would actually replace it. He's, uh, he's been uh, criticized as 
uh, as a nationalist, as a conservative, uh, and uh, in a way that is entirely normal and entirely mainstream for Russia because his, uh, his views on things like immigration and corruption don't differ that much from, uh, from mainstream Russian views. So his primary purpose at the moment and his primary role in life seems to be as an irritant to President Putin by releasing information that Russia would uh, prefer to keep under wraps, such as, for example, the extent of President Putin's wealth, uh, the, uh, the film of his, his palaces on the, on the Black Sea, and so on and so forth. And this is obviously is a reason why Russia would prefer that he were kept quiet. Now, the, the pattern of political murder in Russia is an interesting one to watch. Yes, it's true that uh, he has uh, survived an assassination attempt along with quite a few other people who Russia particularly disapproves of. This is something of a, a new departure in this new authoritarianism that we're seeing in Russia. There was a period during which uniquely in Russian history, um, you had to really, really upset the state in order to be murdered. And let's put this in context. This is a country which is, is normally uh, murdering and deporting and enslaving its populations on an industrial scale. That kind of went quiet for, for a couple of decades with only um, the most expensive opposition figures uh, being graced with a, with a political murder. Now we see that resurgence and we can tell how uh, extensive the scale of murder by the Russian state is by the numbers of people that against all the odds survive. Like Sergei and Yulis Skripal in Salisbury in UK, who survived because uh, unexpectedly, instead of going into the house where the, the Novichok nerve agent had been applied, they came out again and uh, were found in a public place. Alexei Navalny, because unexpectedly, the, um, the pilot of the aircraft he was on went against his instructions and landed again at the nearest available airport. So he got hospital care immediately. And then the doctors who were treating him immediately suspected he might have been poisoned and administered an antidote even before a diagnosis. So in these cases, things went wrong for the Russian state murderers. But what it indicates is we need to think about the number of times that things have gone right and how many other people who've died in mysterious circumstances in Russia or beyond it were in fact murdered by the state. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it in a sense that, you know, there, there's more people that have survived attacks recently, and that's really an indicator of how many other people probably haven't survived attacks. When he was on this plane, he suddenly came down with the sickness, and, and the, the pilot landed immediately against his instructions, and then these doctors administered this antidote to him before he even received a diagnosis. So would he have probably died otherwise? I mean, he seems to be a very lucky guy. <laughs> He is a lucky guy, and so are all of the people who survive these poisoning attacks, uh, because there is some combination of circumstances which means that they don't die as intended. Now, in the case of Alexei Navalny, the, the pilot was instructed not to land at the nearest airport because it was notionally closed, uh, but the, the uh, administrators of the poison couldn't have foreseen that actually uh, a humanitarian instinct would override that and the pilot landed anyway. Similarly, they couldn't have foreseen that the, uh, the medics who saw Navalny immediately on landing knew who he was, suspected what it might have been done to him and immediately administered an appropriate antidote before considering anything else. Those actions saved his life. But also you need to think about uh, the, uh, the attitude 
of the people who Navalny has investigated and with the aid of, of Bellingcat, uh, who were involved in the plot to murder him. You might recall that he actually phoned up one of the individuals who, uh, who was part of the team that had been trailing him and uh, asked him a number of questions about his own attempted murder in a very surreal conversation. But the way in which this person was describing the, the manner in which they had tailed Navalny and then applied the, uh, applied the poison to his underpants was very revealing because of the language he was talking about. When criticized by Navalny himself for why did this guy survive, what went wrong, the language that was used was, well, these things happen in our work. In other words, they were talking about, yes, this is an ongoing job. It's a day job. It's something that happens routinely rather than as an exception. So we have to think about how many other people have died at the hands of the Russian state, but their murder simply hasn't been detected. The question I wanted to end with was, what do you predict will will happen next in in this ongoing uh, saga with Alexei Navalny? It's, it's impossible to tell. Uh, it does, to a certain extent, depend on how much influence he is able to have from, uh, from inside the prison camp where he's currently incarcerated. If he continues to be a problem to the Russian leadership or if continues to provide some kind of embarrassment to them, then it's highly likely that he will suffer some kind of unfortunate accident in the prison camp and never come out. If, on the other hand, his influence is attenuated and he doesn't, in fact, manage to, uh, to cause a problem for the Russian leadership, then it's possible he might serve his sentence out quietly and emerge either with the same attitude he went in with or one that's been substantially changed. But the other thing we mustn't forget, uh, just as with the murders, is all of the other people who are less high profile and less prominent than Navalny, because his extended network of supporters, of activists, of the people who carry out the investigations are far more vulnerable to Russian state pressure and have been suffering, especially outside the view of the media in the small towns across Russia where they can, uh, where they can be targeted by the security forces without any, any repercussions or any visibility. It's all of those people as well as Navalny that we need to be thinking of. Thank you uh, for those thoughts, Kier. And um, those were all the questions I had. Uh, I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. You're most welcome. Once again, that was Mr. Keir Giles. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss some of the questions facing Europe today. Today's show was produced by Connor Fraser, Elliot Simpson, and Taya Coper. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show, or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. <laughs>